Hey, this is Joe Bakmotsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. When it comes to cancer, we are so focused on the specialist who's treating you. And rightly so, because your oncologist or surgeon or your urologist is absolutely crucial in getting you through it. But what about the general practitioner? The family doctors, what role do they play and how can they help you in your fight against cancer? Right now, you're going to hear from John Emery, the professor of primary care cancer research at the University of Melbourne. And John is going to set the record straight on cancer and how it relates to primary care. John, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's a real pleasure to meet you. Pleasure. John, first of all, first I really want to ask you, um, you know, the family doctor, the general practitioner, this is really the first line of defense against cancer. So it's up to him or her to understand what's going on, to send you for tests, to forward you to the right specialist. How can primary care physicians pick up cancer early? There are two ways really to think about earlier detection of cancer. Uh, one is through screening tests. So these are tests that are offered to people without symptoms. And uh, then they're obviously trying to detect people when they present with symptoms and that may be due to cancer and investigating those symptoms. So maybe if we start just thinking about screening tests. Yep. So there are three national screening programs. They're the programs that the government funds because they're very strongly based on evidence and they're the screening programs for cervical, breast and bowel cancer. So the GP has an important role in ensuring people are up to date with their screening tests and particularly promoting some of the tests which are not being very well used at the moment. And the bowel cancer screening test is probably the most relevant in that context at the moment It's sent in the post once you hit hit 50, and only 39% of people actually bother to do it. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And so GPs can play an important role in in, uh, reminding patients that that the test will be coming soon and encouraging them to do it. It's a very effective test, and uh, ensuring that your patients are up to date with those screening tests are, are an important strategy in early detection. But the bowel screening test is the one that's least well used, probably got the strongest evidence for it in terms of detecting cancers early and uh, preventing early deaths from those cancers. Then if we think about symptoms, this is where it's more challenging. The, the majority of cancers, even for those where we have a screening test, they present with symptoms. And uh, most of the patients, when they develop symptoms, they go to see their GP. But it's challenging because the symptoms of most common cancers are also symptoms of much more common, benign, non-cancerous conditions. And that's where it becomes very difficult. In medicine, we talk about so-called red flag symptoms. So these are the symptoms that you really need to think about. Cancer is a possible cause of them. They're things like, uh, obviously, a breast lump, rectal bleeding, coughing up blood, uh, blood in your urine, losing weight, is uh, particularly in the context of other symptoms. Those are sort of symptoms that really should make you think about a possible cancer diagnosis and investigate. But in general practice, those symptoms are actually quite common and most of the time are not going to be due to cancer. So if you cough up blood, then you have a less than a 5% chance of that actually being due to lung cancer. It's much more likely to be an infection. But it's a really important symptom to recognise. And so that's true for some cancers. Some cancers present with these so-called red flag symptoms. But other cancers present with much more subtle symptoms. If you think about pancreatic cancer, that presents often with a bit of indigestion, 
bit of back pain, a bit of tummy pain, but uh, but quite intermittent, so loss of appetite. And as, as sort of single symptoms, you're not, as a GP, going to immediately think about pancreatic cancer as, the, as a cause because it's uh, most of the time it's going to be due to something completely different. And that's why it's, it's uh, the challenges of balancing out when to investigate somebody and against waiting too long and obviously perceived delays in uh, diagnosis. So it's difficult. And some of it's about ensuring that you have strategies that patients know to come back if their symptoms get worse or they develop new symptoms. So that's something called safety netting. Uh, some of it's around using some simple blood tests to begin with uh, that might, again, give you some clues that this is potentially a more serious uh, cause for those symptoms. And sometimes it's about giving some initial treatment and, again, ensuring that patients know to come back if they're if their symptoms persist. And at that point, that might prompt you to think again and raise the likelihood that it might be actually this is an underlying cancer and therefore you would go on and investigate. But we know some cancers are harder to recognise early than others, and they're the ones that have these more nonspecific symptom signatures and things like pancreatic cancer, myeloma, uh, ovarian cancer, these are the ones that uh, are harder to pick up early because their symptoms are not quite such red flag symptoms. Yeah, gotcha. Absolutely. That makes sense. So, John, uh, in terms of technology, can, can mm. it help us to pick up things quicker? And, and if so, how? Yeah, look, there's a lot of interest in uh, new diagnostic tests that might allow us to uh, investigate people with symptoms or, or as new screening tests even. And so uh, if you think about there are different ways that this might be done. Sometimes it's be a new blood test that's picking up early markers of cancer in your blood. And there's a lot of research going on in these types of biomarker tests. Not many yet uh, have been shown to be specific enough to actually use them in general practice. Uh, and so you get a lot of false positives. But there's a lot of funding going into blood-based tests. Then there are new imaging tests, so ultrasound and CT scans, PET scans, and better uses of those tests might um, allow us to detect things. And then there's more, even more interesting things. So uh, there are these things called volatile organic compounds. These are things that you breathe in and out. And some colleagues of mine are working with a group in Cambridge who are developing a sort of breath test for cancer. Uh, and so it p- picks up uh, patterns of chemicals that, you, that come out in your breath that are potentially associated with a number of uh, cancers in, in the lung, but also in your digestive tract. Wow! So there's some really interesting work, still a bit early days yet to be using it in general practice. But that's another test that it's not invasive, but might actually be a really uh, interesting way of picking up both sort of gut cancers and lung cancers a bit earlier than uh, than currently. That's fantastic. Uh, and what about things like artificial intelligence? Is mm. is that is, uh, yeah yeah that's a really good question. So the other thing is looking at large data that exists already, and uh, there's been some early work around looking at uh, large data sets from general practice and electronic records in general practice, and starting to mine those to look for 
patterns of symptoms, abnormal blood tests that might allow you to have recognized a cancer earlier on. And so we've been doing some early work in that area of diagnostic algorithms based on patterns of these tests that might prompt a GP to uh, consider a cancer diagnosis sooner. Uh, than they would because, you know, our brains are fallible <laughs> and <laughs> awesome. uh, uh, we make lots of various, co- we have various cognitive biases when we're thinking about uh, diagnosis. And so we think that these, this approach to using computerized algorithms uh, arising from artificial intelligence pr- mechanisms might in the longer term pick up earlier signals based on symptoms and blood tests particularly in these cancers that are harder to diagnose because of their their non-specific way that they present, that just might prompt GPs to th- think sooner that this is a possible cancer diagnosis that, and somebody might need an earlier investigation. Absolutely. And, and you know, John, as someone who's really gone through, um, through cancer myself, and, and as you can imagine, I've done a lot of tests. Mm-hmm. And so I always imagine that there is obviously, you know, a person on the other end who's looking at those tests, whether blood markers, whether they are CT scans or x-rays or whatever that might be. So how uh, does that process work? And can technology perhaps help in that as well to pick up certain mm-hmm. patterns? Yep. Yeah. So there's, a, again, that's another a big growth area in, in artificial intelligence is, is uh, automated image analysis uh, in radiology. And uh, there's some uh, interesting work, for example, in mammography um, and using automated analysis to pick up early signs of breast cancer that might have been missed by a radiologist. So uh, again, another growth area of use of AI to more systematically analyze uh, subtle changes uh, on a CT scan or a mammogram or so on. uh, that might detect early changes sooner than a, a radiologist might. Uh, thinking about from a GP's point of view, that that may eventually lead to sort of automated image analysis of of low cost ultrasound machines. That you know, so GP might have their own ultrasound machine and have automated analysis of that as an example. The other interesting area in automated analysis is in uh, skin cancer and uh, automated analysis of images of the skin using things like a dermatoscope or even a mobile phone. So uh, <laughs> AI is a really big growth area in terms of trying to, as, a, as another key strategy to detect cancer earlier. Will that help with um, also like going for periodic checkups and, and notifying people earlier about things that potentially could be red flags? Uh, yeah, so potentially, and there's an interesting area in self-monitoring apps. So again, we've been doing some work in skin cancer about using um, apps on a phone to monitor changes in, in your moles as an early marker of change for melanoma. But similarly, there are now these uh, symptom checker apps that uh, you can use uh, that, uh, again, have symptom-based algorithms behind them to prompt patients to go and see their doctor if, if they have certain important symptoms. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, especially for hypochondriac like yeah. myself. <laughs> so that's the danger, of course, is that uh, they can cause too much anxiety and generate a lot of unnecessary worry. Uh, because we all have symptoms most days, if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, I guess you know, for it's, it makes it a really tough job for the GP. Look, because how do you get the right balance between um, between not jumping the gun and not living it late? Yeah. 
That's right. And that, that's part of the skill of being a GP. And they take into account a lot of other factors. Um, obviously, in the context of cancer, cancer is more common as you get older. Um, but uh, so you account f- uh, and you account for certain risk factors as well that you know that put people at higher risk of cancer, whether it's their family history or they smoke and so on. So you use all that information, obviously the examination as well. All these factors are used to help a GP weigh up whether they should be investigating somebody sooner than others. But it's a difficult balance. Yeah, absolutely. Because I guess when you're dealing with cancer, you're you're, you're also in between test results and the treatment Mm. options. And you're working with different specialists. So what do you believe is the role of, of the GP, of the primary care physician in all this? So what, once a patient is, has had a diagnosis of cancer and they've started what is often quite a complex uh, series of treatments, seeing lots of different specialists, it can be very overwhelming. And often patients lose touch with their GP at that point. Uh, but actually, there's, there's still an important role, we think, for the GP during cancer treatment. They can help try and make sense of what's happening for that patient, and they can provide a lot of important sort of psychological support during their treatment. They'll often be managing their other health conditions. A lot of patients with cancer will have other chronic conditions as well. Absolutely, yeah. And so the GP needs to be uh, kept informed of what's happening from a cancer point of view, from the specialist team, aware of the side effects that the patients might be experiencing, the impact that might have on some of their other chronic conditions too. So GPs can play an important sort of coordinating role, uh, ensuring that you're seeing the right specialists, that uh, managing some of the common side effects that people might be experiencing, providing that important support for both the patient and their family, and then managing their other health care, health problems at the same time. Absolutely. That, that makes so much sense. And, um, you know, we, we sort of touched on this, but, you know, many people go online to try to find answers when, when they're in pain, maybe when they have side effects mm-hmm. from treatment. Uh, is that a good idea? And, and when should you go to the doctor? So... Um, it's a, a difficult name when to go and see your doctor. And uh, so there are some very reputable sites and uh, the Cancer Council, for example, has some very useful information about common symptoms that might be due to cancer and therefore should prompt you to go and talk to your doctor about and, and have that checked out. Uh, so the, the Cancer Council websites are, are, from a cancer point of view, a very useful source of information around both symptoms that are important they also if you're during treatment they have a very useful helpline as well Um, and you can actually phone up and talk to one of their nurse educators and uh, get some very useful advice from them if you're worried about all sorts of things Uh, the web is a difficult place because you can go searching and find yourself in uh, in areas where the information is not necessarily as accurate as you'd like it to be so going for to a trusted source there are other trusted sources. There's something uh, called the Better Health Channel, which is a much broader health information resource uh, about health matters in general and can, again, be a sort of useful to get a better understanding about existing health conditions. During treatment, if you actually uh, have have cancer and you're um, receiving treatment, uh, then hopefully your cancer centre will actually provide you with some written information about uh, so that you understand your, uh, your treatment and the side effects and 
reasons to phone up one of the cancer nurses or something if you have problems. So I think often it's better to um, rely on some of the information that you're provided with or to contact the cancer centre that are treating you if you have concerns uh, rather than go Googling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, John. And, you know, like after my all clear, like any sign of trouble and, and, you know, immediately think that it could be cancer, like what do you think is the best way to deal with, you know, fear of cancer coming back? So fear of the cancer coming back is a very common thing for a lot of cancer survivors. And we know that uh, it, that many people will, will struggle with this, and particularly at times when coming up to a, a, a health check with their cancer specialist is a period when obviously you're having tests to make sure you're all okay. But that's a very common period where obviously you're, the fear that the cancer might have returned uh, really starts to cause problems. Uh, it, it is a difficult thing to manage. And uh, for some patients, it can become really very troubling. For a lot of patients, it's actually a, it's about trying to uh, ensure that patients are aware of the important symptoms to look out for. Uh, the fact that actually recurrence for many patients and cancer survivors, their risk of recurrence is quite small. And so it's partly trying to uh, balance so people are aware of actually that they often overestimate the risk that their cancer is going to come back. And some of that sort of just uh, inf- better information around their actual risk and the sorts of important symptoms to look out for uh, can, can be reassuring. There have been a number of um, research studies that have looked at much more detailed sort of psychological treatments, uh, particularly for people for whom fear of the cancer recurring becomes very troubling. So Phyllis Buto's group in Sydney, they've been running um, some trials of, of a course of psychological therapy for patients for whom fear of recurrence has become really very disabling. Um, and they've got some early results showing that, that uh, this very specific theoretically based approach to fear of recurrence uh, is, is a, an effective strategy. And so hopefully that approach might gradually become uh, available through psychologists more widely as the as the results of that uh, trial become more widely known uh, but for a lot of patients it's uh, it is you know uh, um, just going to see their gp and uh, talking to them about their their symptoms and um, gps can often be quite reassuring that actually the, the symptoms they're experiencing are not an important sign of recurrence yeah that's great advice john because I, I i guess a lot of the times i never really thought about going to see my gp even mm. though she's been instrumental you know in terms of picking up cancer mm. and, and mm. supporting me through it so yeah that's a great point sometimes we I guess we kind of don't think yeah of, of the general practitioner as someone who can really help get you through this. Yeah, I think they play a very important role in, in that broader support and, and can be quite reassuring that you, you don't necessarily need to be worried about a particular symptom. Yeah, absolutely. And continuing, the, I guess, the mental side of cancer, like mm. most folks go through, you know, fear and anxiety, uh, you know, maybe when they're going through treatment. And like, what's your advice on dealing with that? And if you think that, it, you know, it might be all a bit too much, where do you turn to for help? So a lot of cancer centers and uh, and GPs as well will have uh, access to uh, psychologists who uh, can be very helpful in providing uh, strategies to help with um, anxiety and depression. Uh, which we know are quite common both during treatment and after treatment uh, for cancer. 
the GP alone can, you know, they're very experienced in dealing with mental health issues. Uh, and again, uh, going to talk to your GP, if you're beginning to experience signs of anxiety or at low mood, they alone can be very helpful in both assessing how severe it's got, whether psychological treatments might be helpful and therefore referring you through Medicare to, to see a psychologist can be helpful. Uh, they may just provide some counselling themselves and, and give you some other strategies to help with your mental health. And there are some sort of broader lifestyle things that you can do. We know physical activity is actually very helpful for a lot of reasons for cancer survivors, and including improving their mental health. So getting into a regular physical activity regime can help with many of the side effects of, you know, the fatigue as well as the anxiety and depression. Meditation, some people find very helpful, yoga, that sort of thing. <laughs> so there are a whole range of different ways to help with some of those mental health issues. And to some extent, it's about finding ones that work well for the individual patient. Uh, again, it depends on how severe things become. There are obviously some drug therapies that some people may uh, need to go on uh, for a period of time, particularly for depression, uh, often in combination with psychological therapies as well. But again, a lot of this can be accessed through your GP, but also the Cancer Centre will often have uh, a team of psychologists and or psychiatrists for people with more severe problems with their mental health during their treatment. Yeah, that makes so much sense, John. And there's a common view, I guess, that um, some physicians are better than others. <laughs> um, is that true? And how do you find one which is suited to you or your needs? Yeah. Look, unfortunately, uh, there probably is variation in uh, the healthcare system, variation in personality type, quite apart from variation in the quality in general of the delivery of care. You know, that's one of the things that as a medical researcher is, is you know, one of the focuses of how you do you reduce some of that variation. But it is a fact that, that we do see variations in the quality of care sometimes. I think the issue of finding a doctor who you get on well with and trust is really important. Uh, and particularly having finding a GP who you develop a, a longer term relationship with, who gets to know you over a period of time, uh, that continuity of care is one of the sort of strengths of, of a good general practice for a lot of reasons. And we know that actually that developing a trusting long term relationship is, is actually a marker of good long term care and, uh, and is associated with better outcomes. Sometimes you do have to shop around a bit, unfortunately. Uh, in Australian general practice, of course, because of you, you have the option to go and see any GP wherever you like, recommendation is often good, so personal recommendation. Uh, and of course, there's, you know, increasingly there's stuff on the web of you get reviews of practices as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but I think it is important to try and find a GP who you can talk to, who you think will listen to you, who give you the time when you need it, and who you feel you, you want to develop that longer term link with. Sometimes it's not always possible to see the same doctor every time, but actually just even being in the same practice where they've got your records and all the information about you from your various specialists as well, all in one place, is also important. So going to see the same practice, even if you can't always get to see the same doctor, is also another way of trying to improve the quality of the care that you receive. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense to me, John, that, you know, if you, if you invest the time upfront to find a good doctor and build up relationship with them, then, you know, it's a preparation for potentially, yeah, dealing with something like cancer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's, it's sort of a really important investment. Mm-hmm. And I know that I was lucky to have a, a fantastic GP and, and, and great specialist. But you know what? At the same time, John, I don't think they <laughs> said the word to each other. Yeah. And, you know, it might, I guess in my case, it worked out well. But I think sometimes, you know, that, that conversation might be needed. So how do general practitioners stay in the loop and, and how can we make that process work better yeah look we know that communication between different doctors is often not uh, ideal there are problems getting um, with our current system of sharing information that is often reliant on still very old-fashioned systems of dictation and then uh, the letter goes off to a secretarial pool and might take weeks before it eventually gets uh, typed. It it sounds extraordinary that hospital systems still rely on those rather old old old-fashioned methods of uh, (laughs) producing letters even let alone you know uh, we have much better methods of of communicating electronically in other businesses and so on but uh, it is recognized that there are structural problems in a lot of the healthcare system that rely on old-fashioned methods of communication. Uh, We know from a cancer survivorship point of view, there has been quite a lot of work around trying to improve communication between healthcare providers. There's been a lot of interest in what are called survivorship care plans, uh, which are a much more structured method of communication, both to the patient uh, and also to the GP the information that's most relevant about providing care for that patient. Uh, We've done some trials of providing that type of information to GPs in models where the care is more explicitly shared between the GP and the cancer specialist. And we've shown that that is an effective way of improving communication. And and increasingly, cancer centres are thinking about uh, how to implement this much more structured uh, method of communicating between uh, the specialist the patient and the GP and other uh, healthcare providers in that more structured way uh, and in a timely way. So there, there are well-recognized problems. There are attempts to improve both the, the way information is provided in a more structured and useful way and ensuring that GPs are better kept in the loop. In the longer term, there is now uh, something called My Health Record, which is a, a federally funded approach to have a single core electronic health record that will at least have a lot of the core information around the health conditions, treatments, test results, and so on, that will be accessible to any healthcare provider, uh, and therefore in a much more timely way. Uh, That's gradually being rolled out. And uh, from, uh, I think, about August this year, then the vast majority of patients within the Australian healthcare system, even if they're not aware of it, will actually have uh, access to My Health Record, which is an electronic record. They will have information about the drugs they're being prescribed or the tests that they've had ordered on them and so on. Um, And GPs will have a core role in helping patients to ensure that that record is reasonably up to date as well about their various health conditions. So that in the longer term, we hope, is a way of improving the communication around what's happened to a patient between the different parts of the healthcare system. It's got a way to go still. (laughs) Uh, But we think from a cancer survivor point of view, actually uh, having an up-to-date 
my health record is a really important part of trying to improve that communication between different healthcare providers. Yeah, that makes so much sense, John. So, and I know that, you know, medical experts can take a complicated case like to a panel of experts mm-hmm. to get their input. Is there a process in place to allow a general practitioner to get a second opinion, like if they're not sure about mm-hmm. what is the best way to go? Yeah, so that's an interesting... Uh, so, um, obviously, in cancer care, there are these uh, what are called multidisciplinary meetings where you have different specialists who will get together and discuss what the best treatment plan is for that individual patient. And probably in cancer, that's been the best developed model of really having good expert input from an oncologist, a radiologist, a surgeon, and a whole range of other allied healthcare specialists as well to really plan what the best treatment is for that individual patient. In general practice, obviously, it's slightly different. The GP is often seeing patients in quite an isolated way, but it, particularly in group practices, uh, so where you have increasingly, you know, doctors are not single-handed doctors. They work as part of a group of doctors in a practice with a with a whole team uh, of nurses as well and, and other allied healthcare professionals. And that practice model of where you have a team of doctors does actually allow better opportunities to seek a second opinion, whether it's informally, you know, just talking to uh, one of your colleagues about uh, a patient that you're not quite sure what's going on. Sometimes there will be a more formal route where actually there's sort of sub-specialization within a practice of GPs. So uh, you might find some uh, GP saying, well, actually a colleague of mine has a particular interest in this area. And And so you might be offered that opportunity to see another GP in the practice because that's their special interest. And again, I think as general practice becomes more complex and uh, they take on a greater role in managing a lot of chronic diseases, then we might see a bit more of that sort of sub-specialization with, within a general practice and with a team of GPs. would say that different GPs have different areas of expertise and so you've got that sort of potential for in-house second opinions. Yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense, John, because I know from even personal experience that, you know, as we've moved around and lived in, in different areas, you, you know, you, you go and look at, for example, a website of a particular practice mm. and you, you start to read about the doctors and you can read about their different areas of yeah. interest and, and expertise and you kind of go, oh, yeah, that might be the person, you know, for, for me or mm. uh, you know, for my son or whatever. So, um, yeah, that, that really makes a lot of sense to me. And... Also, I know that, you know, uh, survivorship is an area that's really close to your heart. So what are, I guess, some of the challenges that folks have after treatment and what is the role of the general practitioner in all this? Sure. So I think increasingly the GP will have a growing role in cancer survivorship uh, as uh, we move more to what are called models of shared care between the hospital specialist and the GP. And in much more structured ways, this comes back a bit to what we're talking about, having better sharing of information with clearer guidance to the GP about their specific role in terms of caring for a cancer survivor, knowing which tests to order in terms of monitoring for recurrence, how to get rapid access back to a specialist if they're concerned, 
So in terms of the core cancer survivorship care, I think we will see a growing role for doing some of what would have been traditionally uh, offered by the cancer specialist, but actually uh, the GP will take on a greater role there, as well, of course, as providing that much broader holistic care from a psychosocial point of view uh, and also managing other other chronic conditions uh, that, that cancer survivor may also have. Cool. Um, thank you so much, John, for your insight and for your advice. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for asking me. Thanks, John.